Honorable, the Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina has resumed sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, in the uh, 18, late 1840s uh, to the early 1860s, Supreme Court of North Carolina would have its August session in Morganton. Uh, in recognition of that fact, when we uh, looked at uh, where in the West would be a good spot for the Supreme Court uh, to hold court, uh, Justice Irvin, for some reason, thought Morganton might be a good spot. So we've uh, ended up here uh, under our state constitution. Uh, it specifies that the Supreme Court will hold court in Raleigh or such other spots as the uh, General Assembly designates. And they have designated uh, Morganton for the West and Edenton for the East. We appreciate counsel making the effort uh, to be here in this uh, historic courthouse, which I hear dates back to the 1830s. Um, You'll notice that there are only six of us. Uh, Justice Hudson is having to follow the protocols. Uh, and if I'd used that phrase five years ago, nobody would know what I meant. But sadly, today, we all know what that means. Uh, she is uh, pr participating. She's watching the live stream. And from time to time, she'll be texting Justice Irvin some questions. Uh, he's not doing his social media updates. He's uh, checking what Justice Hudson might have to say. Uh, and in, along those same lines, uh, we got notice uh, late yesterday and early this morning that the attorney in the last case tomorrow, so I've got it as case six, but it's case three on Tuesday, uh, has uh, tested positive. And so that case uh, has been removed from the calendar. So if y'all know anybody who plans on uh, coming to the third uh, case tomorrow, please let them know there won't be one. I hate for them to show up and they'll be the only ones here, although this historic courthouse is so great, they'll certainly enjoy the historic tour. They just won't get the Supreme Court here. Um, our case for this afternoon is State versus Oglesby and we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court. My name is Jillian Frank with the Appellate Defender's Office. I represent the defendant, Jamal Oglesby. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Oglesby received ineffective assistance of counsel where at the very least, his Miller resentencing court had the authority to run his murder conviction concurrent with his robbery convictions. To be sure, as all these charges were originally joined for trial by the state and they were all sentenced together, the court could have reconsidered how all of the charges were run. But at a minimum, the court had the authority to run his murder charge concurrent with his robbery conviction under either prong of 15A, 1354A. 
For counsel to not ask for this when Mr. Oglesby had explicitly done so in his amended MAR was deficient. The court specifically asked about its sentencing options and counsel wrongly told the court that it could only consider how the murder and kidnapping charge were run with regard to one another. As indicated by the court's question, there was a reasonable probability that the court would have reconsidered how the murder charge was run if it knew it had the ability to do so. Therefore, Mr. Oglesby should receive a new sentencing hearing with effective assistance of counsel. I want to start out by just reminding the court of the different convictions that are at play here. In 2004, Mr. Oglesby was facing trial on two charges of armed robbery, murder, kidnapping, and attempted armed robbery. On the first day of trial, he pled guilty to the two armed robbery charges. He then proceeded to trial and was convicted of the other three. He was sentenced for all five charges at the same time. Does it matter that the events took place on three separate days and three distinct events? No, it does not, uh, Justice. It uh, was all joined for trial by the state, and they were all sentenced at the same time. The sentencing um, court decided to run all of them consecutive to one another. So this, the sentences were the two armed robbery, then the murder charge, then the kidnapping, and finally the attempted armed robbery. The attempted armed robbery was later uh, arrested, so now, as of right now, we just have the two armed robbery, the murder, and the kidnapping. So, so is it the fact that they were sentenced on the same day, or, I mean, if, if they had been sentenced on different days, would you concede that the court can get, cannot go back and revisit any of that? Um, I would contend that under either circumstance, the court could consider at least how to run the murder charge with regard to those armed robbery charges. Since they were all sentenced at the same time under 15A, 1354A, they all constitute um, charges that he was sentenced for at the same time. And the court is allowed to consider how all of those charges are run with regard to one another when they're sentenced at the same time. If for some reason um, he had been sentenced a different day to those armed robbery charges, or if for some reason uh, because he did plead guilty to those charges, they could be considered a different matter. 15A, 1354 would still apply because the second clause of that statute states that the judge can consider any other undischarged term of imprisonment that the person is subject to. And, and, and that was what I was going to ask you about, which is, at least as I read it, you've got two different scenarios that 15A, 1345A applies to. Mm -hmm. One is when multiple sentences are, of imprisonment are imposed on a person at the same time. Mm -hmm. the, obviously, the, the defendant was being resentenced for the murder. Mm -hmm. but the other sentences were extant already. Right. So is it your contention that the this is a situation when multiple sentences of imprisonment are imposed at the same time? I think you could look at it under, I think it would actually apply well, under either. I mean, I mean, we'll get to the second one in a minute. Sure. But, but given that we're only sentencing for the murder technically right now, uh, and when I say we're only doing it right now, I mean at the time of the, the resentencing hearing. How is this a situation in which 
multiple sentences of imprisonment are being imposed at the same time? The resentencing hearing was um, nunc pro tunc back, the, the order that came from the resentencing hearing was nunc pro tunc back to the date of his original sentencing. Was there any contention that you could change the minimum and maximum for any of the other sentences? No, no. So were they actually being, was the defendant actually being sentenced for those crimes at the time of the resentencing hearing? I would contend not resentenced in that the sentence was being changed, but that the different terms of imprisonment that he was subject to on the same day, um, the court could at that point consider whether to consolidate his murder with those other charges or to keep them consecutive as they were originally. The second problem, and you alluded to it, and I stopped you, and let's, let's sure. go there now which deals with a term of imprisonment being imposed on a person who is already subject to an undischarged mm -hmm. sentence. Now, my understanding of a discharged sentence is that that's one that's already been fully served. Um, I, is that right? I read undischarged term of imprisonment to be any term of imprisonment that he's subject to at the time of that sentencing. Well, I mean, for example, we have two robbers, apparently the Department of adult correction or whatever I'm supposed to call it now. I'm, I'm afraid I practiced under DOC so long I can't say anything else. Um, put the two robbery charges first. Mm -hmm. And at least my understanding of the record and the ultimate question I want to ask you is am I understanding the, understanding the record correctly was that the defendant was deemed to have been discharged from at least the first of the two armed robberies. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Um, yes, at the at the point that the resentencing hearing occurred, according to DPS's website, he had fully served the first armed robbery charge, but not the second. But not the second. That one was still um, in play at the time. Uh, but just to follow up on sure. that, given what you said about the order being essentially going back to the date that he was originally sentenced, mm -hmm. does this? undischarged term of imprisonment apply to what was discharged at the date of the original sentencing or at the date of the resentencing here? I would contend that it applies to the date of the original sentencing because this this order, uh, this judgment was nunc pro tunc back to the date of the original sentencing and it specifically notes that on the judgment sheet that came from this hearing. So at Mr. Oglesby's resentencing hearing, um, Mr. Oglesby's attorney told the court that the only issue in front of the court at that hearing was to decide how the murder and the kidnapping charge would be run with regard to one another. So she limited the scope to just that issue. And she, in fact, told the court specifically, the armed robbery charges are not before the court. Um, counsel's assertion, as we were just discussing, was incorrect. Um, multiple sentences all imposed at the same time or undischarged terms that are uh, pending at the time that someone is sentenced can be reconsidered on remand. So 1354 by its plain language applied to his resentencing hearing. At the very least, the murder charge, which was made consecutive to the robbery charge, would need to be reconsidered how that should run. Um, and here we know that the court did not um, address that issue at all. I'm sorry, repeat what you just said again and make sure. Sure, I want to make sure I understood what you said. Sure, so the murder charge 
Um, it's the default that uh, when uh, your sentence for a charge, if it is not specifically uh, made to run consecutive by the court, it should run concurrent. At the resentencing hearing, the court did not consider whether the murder charge should be kept consecutive to that armed robbery charge that it was originally made consecutive to. Um, it was told it could only consider the uh, murder and the kidnapping. And um, I would contend that the court at that point, that actually would be an error. That's not something that's really before this court right, right now. I was, I was just getting ready yeah. to ask that. And assuming, assuming that your position was correct, right. is an appeal from the judgment the correct way to seek redress for the alleged error? Um, well, as compared to a habeas corpus petition or some sort of declaratory judgment? I think that's probably another option. Um, candidly, that was not something that I considered when I was filing this brief, whether or not that specific error had occurred. Um, so that's something that may still be available to Mr. Oglesby at this point. Um, the Court of Appeals majority incorrectly concluded that 1354A had to somehow override Miller jurisprudence in order to apply in this case, and that was incorrect. The cases that it cited for this proposition didn't raise this issue and did not specifically address it. The Court of Appeals' own precedent, the de facto life without parole cases that are pending before this court, actually discussed 1354A in the context of Miller resentencing hearings and applied it. In uh, State versus Anderson, the court noted that there's nothing in 15A, 1354A that suggests that it does not apply to a new sentencing hearing under 15A, 1340, 19B. And therefore, the court does have discretion to determine whether multiple sentences are to run concurrently notwithstanding how they were originally sentenced. So I contend that the Court of Appeals ignored its own precedent here in failing to uh, realize that 1354A actually did apply to the resentencing. Well, and I guess the, one of the things I've been asking myself as I think about this case is, is the issue before us a, substant, a substantive era as to apparently not considering whether to I mean, the trial court rejected an argument that the, the kidnapping sentence should be run concurrently with the, right. the, the homicide one. So are we dealing with a situation in which your argument is it was error not to consider uh, running the robberies, one or more of the robbery sentences uh, concurrently ineffective assistance for failing to advocate it or both? Both. Um, I raised both. Uh, at the Court of Appeals. They disagreed that they could decide the issue of uh, whether or not 1354 meant that they could be resentenced on all of the charges or how, you know, reconsolidate all the charges, um, which is why I also brought the IAC charge. But well, with, with respect to this, this, what I'm going to call the substantive charge, I hope we're on the same wavelength enough I can use that term. Right. Is there any, you know, we just had a long discussion in the prior case of invited error, given the statement that your uh, predecessor counsel made 
at the trial court, is that an instance in which any substantive error that the trial court may have, may have committed was invited? Uh, I would contend no. I believe I mean, that— you, Because you've, you've recited her as saying several times, these things are not before you. Right. Uh, I believe that counsel had uh, a duty to present any argument that was— you well, know, I mean, readily I mean, I'm available. Trying, I mean, I'm trying not to talk about ineffectiveness right now. Right. But just looking solely at your substantive claim, is there an invited error problem here? I do not believe so. Why not? I believe that uh, her limiting the scope to those two charges um, was simply a mistake. I don't believe that the court had any idea that uh, it could exercise its discretion in this way and asked her. And her response, um, I guess I just see that as an ineffective assistance issue and not invited error. Okay. Um, further, Mr. Oglesby's amended MAR raised this issue. So, this was something that he had asked for in his amended MAR. He asked that he be resentenced to all concurrent terms. And even a diligent review of his pleadings should have tipped off his counsel that this was the relief that he was seeking. So Mr. Oglesby was prejudiced by his attorney's failure to advocate for his murder sentence to be run concurrent with the armed robbery. The court asked several times for clarification about its options and specifically asked if there was any authority under 1340-19B, the Miller Fix statute, that would permit the court to modify the order in which the sentence is run as opposed to modifying the 25 to life. And his counsel's response to that was just about the kidnapping and the murder charge only. Well, did the council misrepresent the law, or was the council just merely not utilizing a convenient opportunity that was afforded to him to educate the court? I believe she just did not recognize this possibility. Um, I just believe that she saw those two charges as being uh, the ones that were in front of the court at the time and limited her... Um, her request for relief to those that issue. Is the law clear on this matter to such an extent that the representations made by counsel were ineffective assistance of counsel because they were misrepresentations of the law? I believe it is. I think 15A, 1354A, by its plain language, applies in this case. And I believe that the Court of Appeals, at least, had recognized this fact in two of its other recent cases. So, I mean, while she didn't have those Court of Appeals cases in front of her at the time, you know, 1354A is a generally applicable sentencing statute, and I believe that this is something that she should have been aware of. Even if she wasn't aware of that specific theory of um, reconsidering how the murder charge was run, in a Miller resentencing hearing, uh, counsel's duty is to advocate for the best outcome for her client. And in this case where her client is, you know, was 16 years old at the time that he committed these crimes, um, her duty was to 
ask for the highest relief for him, and a failure to do so, I believe, was deficient. Yeah, I'm just trying to understand. It sounds like it may be a two-pronged approach by you. Maybe it's not, but that's why I want clarification. Okay. Is your ineffective assistance of counsel claim based upon the fact that counsel misrepresented the law or did not zealously represent the client, the defendant, when given an opportunity to do so, mm -hmm. Or a combination of both? I would say both. I think she uh, didn't zealously represent her client by failing to ask for the relief that he asked for in his MAR. And also, uh, I believe that her uh, reading or believing that the resentencing hearing was limited in scope to only those two charges was a mistake in the law. Um, how can we reconcile the fact that the trial court did understand that it could um, sentence for the murder and the kidnapping concurrently and chose not to, how does that bear on the prejudice? Sure. So uh, Justice is correct that they decided to keep the uh, kidnapping charge consecutive to the murder charge, but that was only a difference, that only would make a difference of about two years of imprisonment versus <coughs> if the court was reconsidering or considering uh, for the first time this judge whether or not the murder charge should be run consecutive or concurrent with the um, armed robbery charges, whether it was both armed robbery or just one, it would be a difference of eight or 16 years. And I think that there's a, a very reasonable probability that the court may have looked at that and thought two more years, okay, that I, I'm not that persuaded that I need to change this uh, for a difference of two years, but 16 years, maybe there's a different thought process that goes into that decision. Well, I mean, would it be equally likely to say that, I mean, just to play devil's advocate, if nothing else, for a second, say if I'm not going to run two years more concurrent, I'm certainly not going to run eight? It's possible, but Mr. Oglesby didn't have the chance to present that, so it's impossible but, to but know. I mean, but, but I mean, the problem with the, the problem with this is you've got to one show deficient performance, and then secondly, even if you're able to show deficient performance, you've got to show that there's a reasonable po probability, not just a reasonable possibility, right. but a reasonable probability that the outcome would have been different. And I'm trying to, to under, make sure I understand your argument. But I've got a question or two about the first problem, but let's stick with this one for right now. Right. Your argument as to why there is a, given Justice Earls's question, why it is reasonably probable that the uh, outcome would have been different if the advocacy had been made as you suggest it should have been. Well, the court itself asked. It said, is there any authority under the Miller Fix statute that I can modify the order in which the sentence is run? as opposed to modifying 25 to life. And I think that that question was asking specifically this issue, is, is there any authority for me to modify the order in which the murder charge was run? And counsel said, essentially, we're looking at the, the kidnapping charge and the murder charge. So I think that shows a willingness by the court to reconsider just that. Um, even despite what the court ended up doing with the kidnapping charge. Um, I also think that, you know, and I mentioned this in my brief, we've been having a continuing um, 
sea change of understanding about sentencing juveniles. And I think that uh, if the court had been presented with this and realized that uh, he could have went back and ran this murder charge concurrent with the armed robbery charges, given what we know now about the juvenile brain and uh, development, they may have made a different decision. Let's talk, let's talk about the first prong a second before you sure. move on. You had some discussion with Justice Morgan about why counsel may or may not have done what she did or didn't do. Right. Uh, does it, in your view, matter why counsel did what she did? No, I don't believe it does matter. Is there any, any possibility that the uh, counsel might have thought, I've got some hope maybe of getting the, and I'm just, I'm, I'm now into a hypothetical, so just, you know, don't, don't yeah, I, I know I'm saying something different than the record, but if it said, for example, I might have some shot at getting uh, the trial court to uh, run the kidnapping charge concurrent, but given that it was different days, I don't think I've got much hope of persuading the trial court to run the two uh, robbery charges or one robbery charge concurrent. Therefore, I'm going to make a strategic decision to focus on the kidnapping charge and not try to get the robbery charges. I mean, does that, that seems to me to be at least possible. I don't believe that any, uh, any attorney who was effective would have strategically made that decision in this case. I believe that uh, had she recognized uh, that this was a possibility, this is absolutely an argument that she would have made. I think um, based on, uh, you, you know, she was zealously advocating for the murder and the kidnapping charge to be run consecutive. And like I said, that's only a difference of two years. I believe that if she had realized that she could possibly have had the murder charge run concurrent with the uh, armed robbery charges, and it would be a difference of 16 years that she absolutely would have done so that. So is, is it your contention then that there's no reason to think through what I might reasonably could get given the circumstances that I face? I've got to advocate for the most favorable alternative regardless? I don't believe that that would be a reasonable strategy. Okay. I just want to quickly, I have about a minute until I get into my rebuttal time, I want to quickly just respond to one of the state's arguments from its brief that the, uh, the order from the, the 2017 order granting his MAR was somehow limited in scope. And that order, um, the state actually reads limiting language into that order that do, does not exist. That order said that the motion for appropriate relief for a resentencing hearing is allowed. It didn't give any qualifications to that. And in any event, that was a red herring in this case because it's clear that the murder charge if that's being resentenced could be considered, um, how that murder charge is run could be reconsidered at this point. If there aren't any other questions, I'm going to save the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Let me jump in just for a second. Sure. With the amended MAR, uh, that's the one that was granted by the trial court, right? Yes. Um, it says a uh, resentencing hearing, uh, I'm looking at under, looks like Roman numeral 2, page mm -hmm. 74 of the record, and it lists uh, two 
of the different um, indictments that are, are the numbers that are being um, to be resentenced and uh, consolidated or run concurrently. Um, those don't include uh, the ones that you're now contending should have been uh, included in the mix. Um, how, how, what, what do I see that was presented to the trial court to tell the trial court, the trial court on notice, oh, by the way, these two armed robberies are also uh, to be considered? So on page 74, on Roman numeral two, it lists two file numbers. That's uh, 02CRS60369 and 60325. 60325 are the armed robbery charges. So Mr. Oglesby did actually ask for those armed robbery charges to be run concurrently in his MAR. And um, in his prayer for relief on the next uh, two pages from there, 76, he asked for a de novo resentencing hearing and to be resentenced to one consolidated life with parole charge and list the two file numbers that encompass all five charges. Its order, I think it is page 90 of the record, uh, 92, states that defendant's motion for appropriate relief for resentencing hearing is allowed. It does not limit it. Um, it does not say in part. It does not say um, resentencing as to the murder charge is allowed. So I believe that that is a red herring. But it was the same trial judge that did both the order uh, allowing the, MA, the amended MAR and then did the resentencing. No, it was no. not. So there was one judge that, did, that granted the MAR and there was a different judge that conducted the resentencing hearing. If there are no further questions, I'm going to reserve my last uh, three minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from that, Billy. <clears throat> May it please the court. Good afternoon, your honors. My name is Rob Ennis, and I represent the state in this matter. The sole issue before the court is whether the Court of Appeals erred by holding defendant failed to establish that he received ineffective assistance of counsel at his resentencing hearing. Under Strickland's two-part test, a defendant must show both deficient performance well, and we prejudice. Do, we, we, do have the, we do have a substantive claim as well as, an, as a motion for appropriate relief of, 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 of ineffective assistance claim, don't we? Uh, Your Honor, the only issue that was disputed below on which the appeal is based from the dissent is a dispute about the ineffectiveness of counsel claim. Um, the, the dissent, in its dissenting opinion, stated that it agreed with the majority on the parts of its majority opinion dealing with the structured resentencing claims. Did it, did it say that it agreed with the majority on its interpretation of 15A1345A? You're correct, Justice Irvin. It did, um, the dissent did not. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a disagreement between those two about um, the statute, Section 15A, 1354A. The majority um, has concluded, and the state would contend is correct, that a resentencing court has the authority to run sentences 
before it concurrently or consecutively at resentencing, but only for those judgments that are actually before the court for resentencing. Um, and the dissent would read the statute as applying to a particular resentencing proceeding uh, on which any person who was previously sentenced to multiple terms of imprisonment at the same time um, was awarded. And the statute is, is term, of imprisonment, term of imprisonment specific, and it grants a court authority to run sentences consecutively. Um, how, how do you square that reading with the actual text of 15A-1354A? Because it, particularly the, the second and third clauses that say when a term of imprisonment is imposed on a person who's already subject, so if they're already subject, they're not being sentenced right then, to an undischarged term of imprisonment, including a term of imprisonment in another jurisdiction, which again would not be someone being sentenced at that point. So how, how is it that this language can be read to say that it, it can only run concurrent when sentencing the judge can only run it concurrent to offenses that, are, that he's currently sentencing for? Uh, well, Your Honor, uh, for one thing, I would just like to point out that the dissent based its opinion on the basis that the statute applied to the defendant because he was a person on which multiple terms of imprisonment were imposed at the same time. Um, so the dissent didn't make an opinion that the statute applied on the basis of uh, undischarged terms of imprisonment that he may have been subject to. And I apologize, I don't think I have answered your question. Um, but I guess reading the plain language of the statute, we know that it's directed at trial courts. It says the authority of the court. Um, the criminal code commentary states that the section authorized consecutive sentences in judges. And the language says, when multiple sentences of imprisonment are imposed on a person at the same time, or when a term of imprisonment is imposed on a person already subject to an undischarged term of imprisonment, then the court has the discretion to run sentences concurrently or well, consecutively. Well, re regardless of whether who argued what in the Court of Appeals, just looking at it in, as if we were all sitting here being trial judges together, why isn't at least the second prong of that statute applicable in a circumstance like this? Uh, Your Honor, the, the state's not arguing that the statute's not applicable. Uh, the resentencing court... Do, do you, do you, does the state concede that, again, putting aside issues of preservation, that if we have the facts we have here, that we've got three other sentences, one for kidnapping, two for robbery and murder, that if the murder sentence is if the murderer is uh, subject to resentencing, that under the second prong, uh, the trial court has the right to determine uh, whether the sentence is run concurrently or consecutively? Your Honor, I would, uh, it would be only as to what sentence the resentencing court is imposing. Right, but so the, as the, to but the have, murder... Have, but the, I, mean, I, I think you're correct. I phrased that badly. Let me try again. Oh, had the right to determine whether the homicide sentence should be made concurrent with any sentence that was not discharged out of, as of the time of the resentencing. Does the state concede that the statute provides for that? Uh, the state wouldn't concede explicitly, but the well, state I mean, does. Would you, would you, how about implicitly, then? <laughs> um, Your Honor, I guess the, the real, well, the issue before the court is deficient performance. And so if there's even dispute about whether or not the statute applies, Defendant can't satisfy her burden of establishing deficient performance unless the law is so clear and settled 
that no reasonably competent well, and, attorney. And, and, and that's what I'm trying to ask is let me, let me let's let's stay with 1345A for a second. Given the set of facts we've got here, we've got a two robbery sentences, a kidnapping sentence, none of which have been disturbed, and uh, a, a homicide sentence. We're resentencing on the homicide. Under, thir under the second prong of 1345A, did the trial court have the authority in the exercise of its discretion to run the homicide sentence on resentencing concurrently with the two robbery sentences? Your Honor, under the, under the statute, I believe the court would have had the okay. authority to run whatever sentence it was imposing at resentencing concurrently, um, provided it did as it did here, which was order that the sentence be served nunc pro tunc to the date at which the sentences were imposed. Okay. Um, and so, I'm sorry, getting, getting to my uh, deficient performance, um, you know, I, and I kind of touched on this before, but even, you know, if there's any dispute about whether the statute applies, the defendant can't establish deficient performance because that requires a showing that counsel's errors were so serious that it was objectively unreasonable under prevailing professional norms that no competent attorney would have taken challenge taken counsel's challenged conduct. Um, my colleague has, has now identified the IAC claim as being one in which uh, the defendant, or his counsel was deficient for failing to zealously represent him by not asking for the relief requested in his MAR. Um, we know from the United States Supreme Court in Barnes that a defendant has no constitutional right to have counsel press every available colorable point requested. Um, and we know from the United States Supreme Court in Mearsance that counsel also has no duty to raise every available argument regardless of its merit or its viability or realistic chance of success. In this case, we have, and my colleague described the procedural history, so I won't go into that again, um, but we have an MAR order that only awarded the defendant resentencing on his murder conviction, his kidnapping conviction, his attempted armed robbery conviction. It did not address his, his armed robbery convictions um, in, in the order. It lists only his convictions for kidnapping, attempted armed robbery, and murder that were all tried together at the same trial. Um, counsel also, or the, the MAR order also identifies the fact that his unconstitutional sentence for imposed only on murder, which was a separate judgment than the other judgments, um, was, was unconstitutional under Miller, and that he's entitled now under our sentencing statutes to be resentenced for that murder to uh, life with parole after 25 years. And the MAR order also identified the Court of Appeals limited remand with instructions only to arrest judgment on the attempted armed robbery or the kidnapping. So defendants claim that counsel was deficient for failing to argue that the armed robbery sentences were before the court for resentencing. But, we're not, but they're not, if I'm understanding their argument and they've got a little bit of chance to tell me that I'm not understanding it or you can tell me I'm not understanding it either if that's correct. I understand the argument to be not that we ought to disturb, that the, the trial court had any authority to disturb the sentences that were imposed for the robbery. The issue is, should the trial court have considered and did the trial court have the authority to consider whether the resentence imposed for murder should be treated as a concurrent sentence with the robbery or not? 
and at least their argument seems to be that's not affecting the sentence for the robbery. That's the, that's the sentence for the murder. Your Honor, that's correct. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's the argument now at the Court of Appeals that's being highlighted, I mean, at, the, at this Supreme Court that's being highlighted. Um, and uh, the, I apologize, Justice Irvin, if you wouldn't mind repeating that question. Sure, I'll give it a shot. I mean, you, you keep saying that nobody, they were, the trial court wasn't authorized to re-sentence in the robberies. And I'm not understanding their argument to call for a re-sentence in the robbery. Their argument seems to be, if I'm understanding it correctly, that the trial court, in the course of re-sentencing for the murder, had the right to determine whether the murder sentence should be made concurrent or consecutive with the two robberies. So their argument, if I'm understanding them correctly, does not involve a change in the robbery sentence. It would involve consecutive or concurrent with respect to the murder sentence. Is that any clearer? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Um, and, and I guess the record before the, the resentencing court that we know, we know that the resentencing court was aware that the defendant had to serve two aggravated armed robbery sentences in well, addition, is it, 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 your colleague agreed, I think said it served one and was in the process of serving a second. Was that's that correct. right? That's correct. <clears throat> At least according to the DOC um, profile that was included in the record on appeal, it appeared that the defendant would have been released from his second armed robbery sentence in um, 2021, and this resentencing hearing happened in August 2019. Um, and so the, the trial court here was aware that the defendant had to serve his two armed robbery sentences, uh, the minimums of those, and then the 25 years uh, for his murder sentence, and then also the 29 months for his kidnapping. The trial court was aware that uh, the defendant was requesting relief in the form of running his kidnapping concurrent so that he would have 29 months less before parole eligibility. And the resentencing court still decided to run the murder sentence consecutive to the armed robbery, the second armed robbery judgment. And we know that because he checked the box in the resentencing judgment that says we're going to run this sentence consecutive to the second armed robbery judgment. So it's not a matter of uh, the court not, you know, the record not showing any affirmative action by the court. The court had to actually indicate in its judgment that it was going to run that murder sentence consecutive to the second armed robbery sentence. Had the court done nothing, that would raise an interesting question about whether, it, if it was nunk pro tunk back to the date that uh, the defendant was sentenced, then all the then that would run um, concurrently, you know, to the date that it was sentenced. But the trial court here affirmatively decided in its judgment to run the murder sentence consecutive to the second armed robbery. Um, and counsel, uh, um, my colleague has disputed the MAR order as not granting the defendant uh, resentencing on all of his convictions. Um, I think uh, Justice Morgan had mentioned, you know, the, just reading the order, you can kind of tell what the, what the MAR order was granting relief for. There's no mention of the armed robbery convictions in there. Um, it's only mentioned of his murder sentence being unconstitutional and the Court of Appeals remand only to arrest the kidnapping or attempted armed robbery judgment. Just, I think this is a relevant place to insert just a question I got from Justice Hudson, who noticed, as, as I had, that the amendment to the motion for appropriate relief included both case numbers for the homicide and the case numbers for the two robberies, whereas later orders, the, both numbers don't appear. Uh, does the record explain why? 
You're correct, Your Honor, and, and the record does not explain why that is. Um, but we can infer, based on the record that we have before us, that the court did not grant, uh, well, it, it, we know that it didn't grant relief on the de novo resentencing because the MAR order doesn't discuss the armed robberies at all. Um, it, it could be that that MAR is still outstanding uh, or it's, it was ruled on in a different case, but the records doesn't tell us um, what happened with that request for relief in the amended MAR. But what we do know is uh, from the resentencing judgment by Judge Wood, he made a finding in his resentencing order that the defendant's MAR and amended MAR was granted only in part. And so the defendant has, um, has stated that the, that the state has mischaracterized the MAR order, but we have a finding from the resentencing judge in its order that says that the defendant's MAR and amended MAR was granted in part. And the defendant hasn't challenged that um, in the appellate court. And that's on page. If you, if you look at the order, which appears on page 92 of the record, the decretal paragraph number one says defendant's motion for appropriate relief for resentencing hearing is allowed. That, that's correct, Your Honor. Um, but, but we have to read the order to see what, uh, you know, what the order I guess what relief is being granted, it's just like when we are reading opinions. We don't just look at the sub-disposition line of reverse that, that, That's generally a better practice, yes. <laughs> um, but we have to look at the order, and, and we know from the order it doesn't discuss the armed robberies at all, um, and it awards a limited resentencing only for the defendant to be resentenced for the murder as statutorily required to life with parole and compliance with the Court of Appeals remand, which was only to arrest the kidnapping judgment or the attempted armed robbery judgment. Um, and even the court's order characterized the defendant's claim in paragraph five as a request for his unconstitutional murder sentence to be vacated under Miller and a resentencing hearing under our juvenile sentencing statutes, which deal only with resentencing defendants who had been convicted of murder on which a mandatory life without parole sentence had been imposed. Um, so although the court says the defendant's grant request for relief for resentencing is, hearing is allowed, um, reading the order shows that the, the, the order did not encompass the armed robberies. <clears throat> and, and we also have the finding from the resentencing court in its resentencing order where it explains that the judge had only granted, the MAR court had only granted the MAR in part. And again, in the resentencing order, there's no discussion of the armed robberies. So the armed robberies were not before the resentencing court at the resentencing hearing. Um, and and counsel was not deficient when she correctly told the trial court that the armed robbery sentences weren't before it. Uh, my colleague, too, has pointed out that um, the defendant was deficient for misstating the law. Um, and she pointed specifically to the trial court's question as to whether there was under, any under authority under Section 15A, 1340.19b that allows the court to run the sentence uh, concurrently change the order in which the sentence is run or change the murder sentence to life with parole. And counsel would have been incorrect to say, yes, there is authority under that statute that allows the trial court to run the murder sentence concurrently or consecutively because there's the, the statute doesn't speak at all to running sentences concurrently or consecutively. Um, and and you know, Justice Irvin, you brought up a point about is there strategic reasons? I, there's, there's plenty of strategic reasons why counsel in this position would want to focus all efforts on the kidnapping sentence and not the 
did not bring the attempt, the armed robberies into the resentencing court's consideration. Um, given all the information. In the, event that, in the event that's the state's contention, wouldn't we then need an evidentiary hearing to determine whether the uh, uh, trial counsel actually had a strategic reason? Your Honor, we would not um, because. I mean, hasn't, hasn't this court held that whether, uh, whether a uh, counsel had a strategic reason or not, as in other words, did you make a strategic decision or was it just a sheer oversight, is a question of fact? Uh, Your Honor, it's a question of fact unless the record shows that there are reasonable strategic reasons why counsel would have taken. But, but aren't, to, to get there in this case, don't you have to hypothesize that that was the, that the counsel went through the thought process that my question to your colleagues assumed? And can we do that given that we don't have any evidence as to what was the reasoning behind uh, the trial counsel's actions? Well, Your Honor, for first I would say um, in, in State v. Garcelle, this court had denied an IAC claim that was raised by the defendant and included uh, affidavits from counsel claiming that he was unaware that there was any basis for an objection and also claiming that he had no strategic reason for doing that. so. Um, so even though, even if counsel were to testify there was no strategic reason for doing so, that doesn't defeat, I mean, that that's not sufficient to establish deficient performance because it's an objectively, it's an objective test. And so counsel's subjective intentions don't matter if the record shows there are reasonable strategic reasons why counsel would have so, taken. So is it your contention that if, if the court can hypothesize a reason, a strategic reason, that's good enough to find uh, uh, deficient performance even if there's no evidence that that was in fact the strategic reason that the counsel was operating on the basis of? Well, Your Honor, the state would contend that it's the defendant's burden to overcome the presumption of reasonableness. Um, and so the defendant has not even attempted to overcome that there be any reasonable strategic reason why counsel would want to focus all requests at discretionary sentencing leniency on the 29-month kidnapping sentence rather than the two 95-month attempted armed robbery sentences. Um, and, and there are strategic reasons why counsel would do that. One would be to keep the facts of the armed robberies from the resentencing court. The facts before the resentencing court, the counsel had argued that there was mitigating circumstances because the defendant was the youngest of his co-defendants and because um, it, it, su suggesting that he was easily susceptible to peer pressure. Bringing the facts of the armed robberies before the resentencing court would show that defendant was also with others when he committed the armed robberies but it was he who actually perpetrated those crimes. And the same gun was used to kill Scott Jester just a few days later. So that would outweigh any mitigating qualities of youth that could be argued about the defendant's young age in comparison to his co-defendants who were charged with murder. If you bring in these armed robberies, that would link him further to the murder weapon used to kill Scott Jester. Um, also, to bring the resentencing court to bring the kidnapping judgment before the resentencing court in the first place. Miller only directly implicated his murder sentence, um, and the MAR order only awarded a limited resentencing to arrest one of the two, the kidnapping or the attempted armed robbery. But to bring the resentencing, to bring the kidnapping before the court for resentencing, it's a strategic decision to argue that the kidnapping was related to the murder because they were tried together and because it formed, this, it was 
committed during the same series of events that led to the felony murder, as opposed to the armed robberies that were not committed during the same events as the murder and were not tried at the same trial. So there's strategic reasons why the counsel would tell the trial court that the armed robberies were not before it, to distinguish the armed robberies, to try to bring the kidnapping sentence in, because there was no authority from the MAR order that would have allowed the court to modify the terms of the kidnapping sentence. Let's, let's go back. Justice Hudson had a question on that point. Let me ask it now. She indicates that at page 86 of the record, which is the, where the trial court and I realize there were several different trial judges involved in this process. I know Judge Gottlieb was involved in it and Judge Wood was, uh, that the order requiring a response to the amended motion for appropriate relief uh, mentioned all of, the, all of the offenses that we're talking about, but that the response filed by the state did not. Any, do, you do you have any understanding as to why the state's response would have not encompassed everything that the trial court's uh, order requiring a response would have asked for? No, Your Honor. Um, it, the record doesn't disclose why that would be. Um, we, you know, it could be that the state filed the response in a different file number, um, but that's not, that's not included in the record. Um, it could be that they had discussed the matter afterward and the defendant decided not to pursue those claims. Um, you know, we just don't know from the record, and it's the defendant's burden to show. I mean, um, what, what, we, what we appear to know is that in the original, in the amended motion, all of these offenses were mentioned. The response order required, uh, uh, required a response to all of these offenses, and the response, however, only dealt with those uh, offenses that were specified in the same indictment in which the uh, homicide was charged. Is that a fair reading of the record? That's a fair reading, Your Honor, yes. Um, I mean, one reason, too, could be the amended MAR, when it's describing uh, the convictions, states that all of the defendant was convicted of the armed robberies. It says, at trial, the defendant was convicted of the armed robberies, the kidnapping, the attempted armed robbery, and the murder. Um, but it wasn't at trial, at the jury trial. The defendant pleaded guilty prior to the jury trial um, for the two armed robberies. So it could have been a misunderstanding in the amended MAR um, that was later identified. But again, we're just, you know, based on the record before us, there's, there's absolutely no indication that the trial court awarded a, a de novo resentencing hearing on, on the armed robbery convictions. Um, but putting uh, deficient performance aside, defendant cannot establish that he received prejudice from counsel's alleged errors. Um, in this case, you know, when we assess prejudice, we have to look at the totality of information before the resentencing court and whether it's reasonably probable that the resentencing court would have decided to exercise, in this case, exercise its discretion differently. Um, and so that would require a defendant to show a reasonable probability that the resentencing court would have chosen to run his armed robbery sentences concurrently, or based on the argument today, that the resentencing court would have run the murder sentence concurrently to the first armed robbery sentence um, when it had already denied his request to reduce, to run the 29-month kidnapping sentence concurrently. Um, and, you know, the totality and circumstances before the resentencing court were that the defendant was an active participant in the incidents involving Scott Jester, and he was the trigger man in Jester's murder. Uh, he and some friends decided to rob a restaurant late one night, and the only person they found was a custodian, Scott Jester. Defendant forced Jester into a car, robbed him, and then shot him in the back of the head. 
Um, and also the facts before the resentencing court were defendants' significant disciplinary record. We have a disciplinary record spanning nearly the entire 15 years he was incarcerated, just up until six months before the resentencing hearing. And these were serious infractions just one year before the resentencing hearing, which included possessing weapons, being involved with gangs, committing, uh, uh, participating in riots, assaulting prison staff with weapons. And this was two years after he filed his amended MAR requesting relief on the basis that the original sentencing court didn't have the guidance of Miller and Montgomery. Um, unlike Montgomery, defendant here actually had the opportunity to demonstrate maturity in the 15 years he's been incarcerated, but he's made no showing of any attempt to re rehabilitate other than the fact that he submitted a proposal to help at-risk youths a few weeks before the resentencing hearing while he was detained in Forsyth County Jail. Um, also, so we have those facts before the trial court. We have the nature and circumstances of the crimes with Scott Jester. We have the defendant's significant disciplinary record, and we have the fact that the trial court was well aware that the defendant would be required to serve both of his minimum aggravated armed robbery sentences, and then his murder sentence minimum of 25 years, and then his kidnapping sentence of 29 months before he was parole eligible. And the trial court still found in its discretion, based on its order, that the facts of, of the resentencing hearing warranted consecutive sentences, and it would not reduce the defendant's parole eligibility by 29 months. Given that the same resentencing court has denied defendant's request to reduce his parole eligibility by 29 months, there's no reasonable probability that had the additional facts of the, of the armed robberies come before the resentencing court's consideration, it would have instead granted the defendant's request to reduce his parole eligibility by 18 and a half years. So there's no way that the defendant can show prejudice in this case. We have a record that's so sufficient to show that the trial court would not have um, exercised its discretion in the opposite manner than it did already. Um, <clears throat> so in sum, uh, you know, the Court of Appeals correctly held that the defendant failed to establish both prongs of his ineffectiveness claim. Defendant failed to establish deficient performance because counsel's challenged conduct of telling the court that the armed robbery sentences weren't before for resentencing was correct. Um, and even if the armed robbery sentences were before the court or the court could run the murder sentence concurrently to the first armed robbery, defendant failed to overcome the presumption that there wouldn't have been a strategic reason why counsel would have advocated and focused all efforts for discretionary sentencing leniency as it is on the kidnapping and not try to shoot for the moon and request concurrent sentences on all of these sentences. And second. Can I just ask you about the, on this prejudice point, what, what do you make of the fact that the trial court did ask whether he had, uh, you know, what authority he had to um, run these sentences concurrent? If, 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 if you're correct that he had um, no intention of, of um, thinking about a concurrent sentence, why would he ask about it? Your Honor, I think two reasons. The first would be that the court was, was genuinely curious about, um, you know, what, what the statute said and what his sentencing options would be. And, and also, it came directly after the defendant requested for a concurrent kidnapping and murder sentences. So the defendant explained that he was requesting concurrent kidnapping and murder sentences, and the court says, I'm curious, is there any authority under section 15A, 1340.19B that authorizes the court to run the murder sentence concurrently rather than change it to 25 to life? So I think the question indicates only that the court was 
was curious about its options and then also um, was curious for the request of relief that was granted, if that was even possible under the statute. And uh, the Court of Appeals also did not err uh, under the prejudice prong because as it, as it reasoned, you know, defendant cannot show a reasonable probability that the same resentencing court that denied his request for sentencing leniency by only 29 months would have granted instead a request for sentencing leniency that involved 18 and a half years. Um, and, and the dissent has misconstrued the, the prejudice standard. It, it's not whether it's substantially likely a trial court would have exercised its, its discretion to consider an unrequested matter. That's not the standard that uh, Strickland commands. I see I'm out of time. Thank you very much, Your Honors. Thank if you, there's counsel. no further questions. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. May it please the court. I have a couple of points that I want to make. Um, if the resentencing court in its MAR order, or I'm sorry, if the resentencing court in its order said that the MAR order was limited in scope, the court was wrong because that 2017 order does not limit the resentencing hearing in any way. It simply grants his MAR. This, in fact, shows that the court didn't know that it had the ability to reconsider how the murder charge was run. Um, if the court did, in fact, include that in their order that they believed it to be a uh, limited resentencing hearing, then that <coughs> further shows that the court um, didn't realize that it had the discretion to do that. Uh, the state said that the dissent here found that the statute 1354A applied under the first prong and uh, noted that that somehow meant that uh, this court is bound by that and that's not the case. Um, you're not limited by the dissent's reasoning, so this court could decide that either prong of 15A, 1354A uh, covered the situation that was present in this case. And I think Justice Hudson would like me to ask, uh, Sure. is there any part of the dissent's logic that you don't agree with? No, there's not. So another um, contention by the state was that the court actually did consider whether or not to run the murder charge con consecutive or concurrent because it lists on its order that it's consecutive. And there's no evidence to show here that the court on resentencing considered whether it could run it con concurrently or consecutively. Um, and that's based on everything in the transcript. It was never once discussed. Uh, the entire time. So I would contend there's no evidence to support that the judge actually did consider that, and it's most likely that it was just printed on the form at, because he believed that he had no discretion to change that. I would also contend that all the talk about the uh, 
this being a limited resentencing hearing that was somehow limited by the numbers printed on the form or uh, any other uh, explanation the state has come up with is not relevant here because unquestionably the murder charge was before this resentencing court and the court here could have absolutely considered whether it was consecutive or concurrent to the armed robbery charges. I see my time is up so I'm going to quickly conclude. For these reasons and those argued in brief, Mr. Oglesby received ineffective assistance of counsel. He requests that this court reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals and remand his case for resentencing. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to counsel for uh, both sides for making the trip here to Morganton. We appreciate that. Uh, folks here in Burke County have been so gracious. Uh, and the, the court is greatly appreciative. Uh, thank you for those of you that are sitting here with us today. And uh, with that, Mr. Clerk. All rise. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until 9.30 a.m. tomorrow morning. God save the state and this honorable court.